From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clipping. My name is Mickey Hellerback, and I am a writer for Central Sauce. I am here with Jashima and Ryan. Jashima, you want to introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Jashima. I'm a writer and podcast host at Central Sauce, and I lead music at brownvillemagazine.com. Ryan, go for it. Yep, I'm also a writer at Central Sauce and for Paradise. I just add that to my intro now. <laughs> I should say that. Um, and yeah, I'm excited for this thing we got going today. Yeah, um, real quick before we get into the intro for this special episode, I do want to promote my upcoming uh, radio show with Fifth Element Radio, since uh, this podcast is also a part of the Fifth Element Podcast Network, something we're launching with our esteemed uh, editor of this podcast, uh, Charlie, uh, is Fifth Element Radio, and mine is, uh, I believe, the first show coming out with it, uh, entitled 92 Till. Um, where I will explore each of my favorite albums from each of the years I've been alive up to now, uh, ranging for the rest of the year. So stay tuned for that. Uh, First episode will drop next Friday, June 10th or 11th. I can't remember which one it is. I believe June 11th, June 11th. (laughs) Um, But yeah, stay tuned for that. Um, Yeah, so uh, get right into this intro. On today's episode of In Search of Sauce, we are introducing our seventh journalist interview. During our regular program, we dissect pieces and share our thoughts, but today we are receiving the sauce directly from the source. We are incredibly hyped to introduce someone whose accolades are extensive, but I will try my best to get as many in without keeping you here too long. The former editor-in-chief of the legendary Vibe magazine, former culture editor of ESPN's The Undefeated, the premier platform for exploring the intersections of race, sports, and culture, and the former editor-in-chief for Billboard. That's just some of her editor credentials. Her writing has touched publications such as Rolling Stone, NPR, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She has appeared as a featured commentator on the Biography Channel, VH1, ABC, BET, uh, PBS's Charlie Rose and Good Morning America. She has published two novels, More Like Wrestling and Bliss, and received feedback such as the New York Times Book Review calling her work lyrical and original. In 2017, she also released her book, She's Every Woman, The Power of Black Women in Pop Music, which is an authoritative narrative history of one of the most powerful segments of popular music, black female recording artists told through the stories of some of the most famous and beloved female stars of our age, including Aretha Franklin, Gladys Knight, Whitney Houston, and Janet Jackson. Jackson. Carrying on the energy from this release led to Danielle hosting the Spotify exclusive uh, podcast Black Girl Songbook, a music talk show that centers on the sounds and stories of black women, which will be followed up again in 2022 with another book, Shine Bright, A Personal History of Black Women in Pop. I promise I could keep going for another 10 minutes at least, but I will close by saying she is goals, she is bars, she is dope, and of all the podcasts she could appear on, we are so glad she chose ours. Here is our interview with Danielle Smith. So... Hello, Danielle Smith. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for having me. It's always good to be around like-minded folks. And from what I remember around about you guys, we are like-minded folks. Oh, that's, that's super kind of you to say. How are you doing today, generally? What's been going on? Let's see. What has been going on? Well, I'm super happy to be uh, in California. I'm super happy to be coming up on my wedding anniversary. This is a big month for me always, June. It's my wedding anniversary and also my birthday. So uh, I like to call it the month of Danielle. And I suggest we all join me in that. I think the larger the group, the better (laughs) that joins me on that is good. But yeah, it's the month of Danielle in my marriage and in my family. So it's usually a pretty good month for me. Well, we definitely feel blessed that uh, we have scheduled this podcast <laughs> on your month, even without knowing it beforehand. That's really dope. Yes. So we we want to jump right into Black Girl Songbook, which we are all incredible fans of. Um, and the 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 initial question I definitely wanted to ask, and we all wanted to ask, which is, uh, what's the most fulfilling part of, of doing it? Oh my goodness, what's the most fulfilling part of doing Black Girl Songbook? It's hard to narrow down because we're having such a good time. You know, it's hard to narrow down. But if I had to, I would say it really is just telling the stories of women that go untold. And it could be the smallest facts that we find out or that I just know from over the years. Um, And when we state them and then have the music to back them up, um, when we have the energy to back it up, when we have great production to back it up, it just feels like we're doing something worthy of the women who originally made the art and so it just feels effing fantastic. Yeah, you can swear, by the way. Oh, good. It feels fucking fantastic. <laughs> Beautiful. So you kind of talked about, you know, looking back and, and giving giving people flowers. But how does it feel while doing the show to continually be in such a reflective mindset? I mean, I think just being a journalist for all the years that I've been doing that um, and being an author, I feel like I'm like... I'm capital R reflective just in general as a human being. Um, I feel like I'm always thinking about the song or the person who made it or who produced it or how did they all come together and like what did it really mean in the year that that it came out as compared to the year that we're living in now. So I feel like I think about all of those things probably too much. It takes over my life. But what it does on Songbook is, to be honest, it's emotional because I think it's Trudy that says this all the time, or maybe it's Sean at The Ringer, that it's very intimate. And you guys know this. When you're when you're speaking, it's like you're literally speaking into somebody's ear. Like, there's not that much more that is that intimate outside of, like, actually probably having some type of real sex. So if you're literally in somebody's ear saying like, Natalie Cole is actually the closest to Aretha that we have ever known. And we all just need to get on that, understand it and celebrate that. I will give you the facts and the figures. 
Like, it's so powerful and emotional. Uh, for Bizarre Magazine, you said, uh, I feel like my history has prepared me for this show. So do you feel like you could have done this show at any other point in your career? No, I don't. Um, I think I've always been that good. I always get calls, um, Danielle, you know, it's the 16th anniversary of blah, 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 the 14th anniversary of that, the 50th anniversary of, you know, Prince's first album. And Whitney Houston has passed away. Can you come on, you know, television and talk about it? Back in the day, remember there were all those VH1 shows? behind the music. Okay, so I was queen of that kind of stuff, getting called to do, you know, Danielle, can you just come in and talk about Foxy Brown, Little Kim, Queen Latifah, can you come in and talk about Tony Braxton, can you come in? And I was queen of that. So I feel like I've had a lot of practice actually talking about artists, but I haven't had a lot of practice putting myself and my name and my like overall knowledge on the line for like half hour, 45 minutes, an hour. It's a whole other thing than a producer asking you, so Danielle, what did you really think about Tony Braxton's first single? I mean, that's a conversation that you have at the bar, right? It's like, well, as a matter of fact, let me tell you what I really think, though. You know what my real jam is, though. So that's not hard, at least for me, with all the experience that I have. But it is much more difficult now. I mean, with the help of a great team, I'm writing the scripts. With the help of a great team, I'm speaking into a microphone for 45 minutes. There's no one, there's not another person unless we bring another person on the show. So could I have done this when I was 30? No, man, I don't think so. Besides, I was busy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you said something really interesting that it's about, it it feels like you're having a conversation at the bar, which I think leads really well into a question I wanted to to ask her just would be something that I would have in conversation about one of the episodes at the bar. Mm-hmm. So in the Whitney Houston episode, you okay. mentioned a slew of the apexes of her career. Mm-hmm. And I personally was amazed that you mentioned neither Heartbreak Hotel or Cinderella. So please explain. I have an answer. And I love uh, Brandy. Um, I like Heartbreak Hotel as a song. Um, But I like it when Whitney sings. Uh, I I do like it when she's by herself. Um, I don't know if all of the moments that I chose were her by herself, but those are the moments that I like the most. I don't like group Whitney. That's not really my favorite Whitney. Uh, And that's no disrespect to the women that she's singing with. They're all geniuses in their own right. But for me, I just want to hear Whitney Houston. I want no surprises. I want nobody else's like notes coming next to her notes. I want no one else all up in her energy. Even I remember in the video from for I'm Every Woman, you remember it's like, oh my God, there's Shaka Khan. Oh my God, TLC's in the video, how cute. And I'm just like, I'm fine with Whitney. Like, I love y'all, but I am fine with just Whitney. Mm. So speaking, speaking on that, for sure, um, you said that her rendition of the national anthem redefined what that song meant to you and more generally for black people in America. Could you speak on what that new meaning is for you personally? I think one of the main things I think about Whitney's rendition, her 
the way she translates those lyrics, right, is that she actually sings them with the punctuation and the meaning in place. I think that so many lines in that song are questions. Most of the time when we sing them, we sing them as facts. It's like basically the song is about we're a battle. Um, we're a group of people. We're trying to be a country. We're a battle. We're trying to escape, you know, the bad people, you know, the people that, you know, wanted our taxation without representation. Or let me go back to like American history in the 10th grade or whatever. But it's like it's been bombing all night. Is the flag still there? Is the question, right? That's the whole thing. Like, is the Star Spangled Banner still there? And I think we don't sing it with those inflections when we're taught to sing it as school kids. And most, even the best singers don't sing it like it's a question. Whitney Houston sings it like it's a question. And she talks about the land of the free. And I really do believe that there's not a more important word in the English language for African-Americans in particular than any version of the word free. Free, freedom, free. And the way she sings it, it's one of the most difficult notes in the song. Or the land of... And it goes up really high. And most singers, even the best, struggle with that note. Whitney slowed the whole... Sentence down, she sang free beautifully and higher than she needed to. And then she even adds a flourish to the end of free. Just to let you know, I'm up here in this range and I'm not tired. This is not any kind of a stretch for me. I'm inspired by this word and what it means to me as a woman, a black woman, a black American, and as an American. And... It changed the song for me, and I feel like everybody's been going for that ever since. It's it's really interesting that you mentioned before specifically about singing the question, because that comes up again in the podcast in your section about the Now That We Found Love song, that's specifically about artists singing a question. Now, one of my favorite moments in music ever is actually another sung question, which is when Michael Jackson and PYT sings Where Did You Come From, Baby? Because it just encapsulates that moment of like, just um, amazed like wow yes. where did you come from but that one is a little bit more about love's initial discovery rather than the fulfillment of like oh i've actually found this love do you think those two and that moment happens throughout the music catalog on many many different occasions do you think those two moments correlate or do you in your own head hear them or see them differently which two moments you're talking about the michael jackson moment or you're talking about and and the moments in the now that we now found that we love found love um, so we have now that we found love, what are we going to do with it? Which is such a great question. And then we have where did you come from, baby? And ooh, won't you take me there? Right. Uh, Which is like, yeah. woo, right. So um, so that's like two questions. Um, yeah. I just love those those kind of lyrics. And, and when people actually sing the question, because it just to me invites the listener in like, how would you respond to this? You know what I mean? Like, it's not like now that we found love, it's like, what are we, what are we going to do with it? So you're already in the record with them. Um, where did you come from, baby? And ooh, won't you take me there? I mean, if you're asking me, are they the same? Are they great? 
uh, do questions matter in pop R&B? Like it just, it's just, I wish it was coming to me right now. The songwriters on both of those um, songs because they're so important, but as important are the artists that translate the songs vocally. And those questions are the, the way they sing those questions and invite us into the record is the reason why you, Mickey and I are loving those songs so much and why they stand the test of time. Right. They're so specific in the delivery and in mm. the lyric and it, it's kind of like the fusing of those two moments and that, what that kind of explodes that really makes them. Yes. Happy. Yes. I'm glad, I'm glad you reminded me um, about um, Where Did You Come From, Baby? Because that's a great one. We need that playlist, right? We need that playlist. We need that question playlist. Yeah. That would be amazing. Get, yes. Yeah. Get it popping. Spotify. Yeah, right? Spotify. Spotify. Yeah. No, let's go. <laughs> I wanted to uh, uh, next ask, actually, if you could talk about a Black Girl Songbook in, in the sequence of after she's every woman and maybe a prelude to shine bright, which is a, actually how I'm kind of, kind of thinking about it in the context of your, your work. Um, how, how are they all different forms of, of your expression about these topics and how do they intertwine? So we're talking about the difference between songbook and shine bright. Sure. Yes. Well, I mean, there would be no Black Girl Songbook if there was no Shine Bright. I mean, Shine Bright has been going on in my life uh, probably since I was eight years old. So that's been being thought about and written one way or another, you know, for decades on decades on decades. Shine Bright just stems completely from my love for and my curiosity about music period and black women in music and and what it means to be a pop star and a black woman at the same time i've been asking those questions since i was a kid um and then you know the shine bright journey is a is a is a is a long one also just writing it you know it started out as one thing and i'm going to talk way more about it around the launch of the book but it's just it started out as one thing it became another it started out with one agent i it landed with another agent one publisher another publisher um and I say all this because it's a labor of love. And even after finishing the book, and it's not really a thin book, Shine Bright. Like, it's not that thin. It's, it's pretty substantial. But even after finishing, I felt like I just had a lot more to say. And I also wanted to do something that was very kind of immediate um, and intimate. And I started thinking about, you know, podcasting. It, it, it's... The medium is so compelling to me. Radio is compelling as well. Um, podcasting with its ability to like have these little chapters and stories and episodes and stuff that's missing, I think, from terrestrial radio. Um, for most terrestrial radio, it really had me very curious. Um, obviously, my husband has a great podcast, um, so that made me know something about it. Um, my husband and I had had a podcast of our own. This was like a pirate radio type of on the kitchen table type of podcast relationship goals that we did for a while off and on. Um, and then I have friends, you know, who have shows and things like that. And I was getting more and more curious. And I was like, I'm ready to run my mouth. I got to get my confidence, you know, I got to get my confidence up and just pitch something. And, and just go for it. Like, even, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm a winter chicken. 
And I think I might be in the beginning of being a fall chicken or a late summer chicken, but I'm definitely not a spring chicken, right? So, but even at this age, it's like you still, you're not just always walking around, at least for me, like I'm the most confident person in this world. Anything that I want to do, I'm just going to do. It's like, no, it's a lot of conversations with self and friends and family, you know, gassing you up, saying you can do it. And, and here it is. And I'm so blessed and excited and grateful. That's that's incredible. I think there's a vulnerability that lives in our voices. It's exceedingly, exceedingly intimate, the type of experience and impact you suddenly feel like you're having on people because they're letting you into their physical space, um, which I think is so, so, so powerful. But if you could have one reverberating reaction to giving flowers and awareness from the podcast, what would it be? Well, when I think about the journey of the Natalie Cole episode, um, one, the personal love that I have for her and her work, um, two, just the like, the thing of just sharing her with people. I mean, Trudy's on the call and I think it was Trudy that told me at the time when we were going over the script, and this is around the time when Trudy and I first started working together on the show. And I think Trudy was like, she didn't know that Nat King Cole was Natalie Cole's father. And Trudy, I don't care if you're embarrassed. And (laughs) I was like, how can people not know that Nat King Cole is Natalie Cole's father when his name is Nat Cole and her name is Nat Cole? And, and, and Trudy, if it was Trudy, and I think it was Trudy, was really like, I don't care. You're not shaming me. Isn't it kind of your job to, like, make folks aware of that? Like, get your script writing on, please. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was, Trudy. It's like, that's what the show's job is. The show's job is not to shame people because they don't know who somebody is who lived, like, you know, 60, 70 years before they got into music. You know, my, my job here, my mission here is to let people know about Natalie Cole's voice and her life and, and, and her relationship with her father and her relationship such as it was between her and Aretha Franklin and, you know, the struggles that she went through and still made this incredible music and almost lost her son. And like, and then just thinking about like the, the dramas that her father went to becoming what was essential. He was really one of the first black pop stars in the United States of America and and how wonderful that was for him and how terrifying it was. People were rushing the stage trying to beat him with baseball bats because he had a white band. We talk about this stuff on Black Girl Songbook and how that is a generational trauma that's passed down to Natalie. How would she ever feel comfortable within herself to be a black star when she saw her father getting beaten down for it, called an Uncle Tom for it. How? That's the kind of thing we have to talk about, though. And that's the kind of thing that it's hard to talk about, but I still love talking about. And I think one of the most incredible things about it is that's going to be a certain demographic and age range's first introduction to that music. You're now their point of discovery, and that narrative around that point of discovery is so different than how the rest of us and everyone elder to us was introduced to those artists and their music because they had so little control on telling their story. And I think that's the most magical thing about it. 
You know, I had not thought about it like that. But that can be true, right? Yeah, Trudy's first um, exposure to learning that that was her dad was through you. It wasn't on some random article. It wasn't mentioned somewhere else by somebody else who had no business talking about it. It was through you, and it got context and nuance, and, and that's beautiful. Yes, it is. That is. It is, and it means a lot, like I said, too, just because she means so much to me, and that's the other thing that Songbook gives me the opportunity to do is, and it's the same with Shine Bright. It's, it's called Shine Bright, a personal history of black women in pop. Um, because it is it is about um, the women that, for whatever reason, mean so much to me personally. Well, I'm glad we're we're on the path of talking about you offering new introductions and perspectives uh, to women through your work. And I feel like I garnered such a new perspective of Sade through your piece for NPR oh. last year, which we covered on the podcast. Mm. It was uh, over overarchingly one of our favorite pieces we've covered. Um, and I said on the podcast that it felt to me like the piece was in a journalistic way, uh, sewing together a quilt, like using different fabrics from your life to kind of put together a full quilt or blanket. And I was wondering if that, uh, I guess, kind of metaphor parallels any way in which you thought about writing it I mean it did uh, I've you know I've I think it wasn't until right after Tupac died that I started getting really serious about trying to write like that um, I had avoided writing about uh, Tupac over the years because I knew him in, in Oakland. Uh, we all were in the same friend group. And, you know, as I often say, it wasn't a star that died for me. It was, it was, it was a boy that died for me when Tupac died. And I always knew that I was very biased in my every opinion about him. Um, so I would recuse myself from writing about him. But then finally I had good editors um, at, at that time, it was Alan Light and Rob Kenner. Um, Alan Light, who's on Sirius right now with a great show, and Rob Kenner, who just wrote the uh, a recent Nipsey Hustle biography. Um, but Rob and Alan came to me and said, "You have to write the introduction to this book. It was a, it was the introduction to a collection of essays about Tupac." And they were like, "You have to write it." And I was like, "I'm not really into writing." And they're like, "No, we need somebody to write like a full like cradle to grave." First of all, that's creepy, but that's what was said need you to write a real cradle-to-grave piece about his life and his music. And then they said, and how you were a part of that. So then I was like, okay, so that doesn't even, so you, you know me, I was like, so you want me to put, I want to be super clear. You want the first person, like you want the actual letter I in the piece. Um, And I don't even know right now if I did put the letter I in there, but I did use all my personal knowledge about Oakland and digital and Pac and what was going on in the crack game back in Oakland at that time and um, everything that I knew that happened around the same song video because I was on the set for the same song video. So I really hadn't been using that stuff until then. I don't know why. I don't know why I needed permission, but I did. And so then over the years, I would do it every once in a while. And when they came to me at NPR and said, 
we need something about Sade, I was strong enough to say, because they wanted a particular album. And I was like, ooh, that's not even my favorite Sade album. Um, it was the 20th anniversary of whatever album it was. And I was like, I don't even like that album that much out of her catalog. So I don't even know if that's, if this is a piece for me, right? But again, great editor and my NPR editor. And they were like, well, if you just want to write about her and her career and what she means to you, it's such a gift when a producer or an editor says that to you. It makes you feel so validated, at least for me. And they were like, this, as, and I said the same thing. You want the letter I in there? Like the letter I. <laughs> like, yes. Are you deaf? Pardon me. And I was like, yes. I was like, okay. And you know, that was a hard ass piece to write. Because, you know, it jumps off with a pregnancy that does not come to fruition. And that it doesn't was no accident. And these things are never easy to discuss. But it's when a singer, an artist can help you get through that. So that's why I was just like, if that's a part of the quilt, then let's, let's just... Let's just say what needs to be said, you know, and it it has given that that shot piece also, I think, really contributed to me and, and songbook because it was like it was the same thing at Spotify at the ringer where, you know, what the, what my best producers say to me often is. No, you have to make choices, not with regard to how big an artist is or how impactful they were on culture, but. What has been your interaction with this person as a fan or as a journalist? Because that's the thing that people want to hear. They want to hear your story as much as the artist's story. And I think it's Sean that says to me, Sean Fennessy at The Ringer, that sometimes you got to be the black girl in Black Girl Songbook. And, I, and it's such a freeing statement when I hear that from him. When I read a piece like that, I'm really interested to know what the writer's connection to just words and writing is so when did you first fall in love with just the art of words the art of putting words together was that through journalism was it through music or fiction because you're a fiction writer too where did that spark come from that's such a good question Like, where does that come from? It's just like, I just don't really recall a time when it wasn't a part of my life. Like, mm. you know, you can get into all the like weird, like psychological stuff, like. Let's go there. <laughs> what, like I, I would, like, I always feel like people say this and it's not true. For me, it is true. I was reading even like from right before I was three years old. So it's like, I always was about a book. I was always about a sentence. I was always about a word, trying to pronounce it, um, trying to spell it, um, you know, and then you get to the third grade, fourth grade, and you have, I'm blessed with great teachers, white, black, and otherwise, honestly, where, you know, people took an interest. I'm a, I tend to be a naturally, if not too enthusiastic uh, person, like words just get me super hyped, telling stories gets me super hyped. Like if you say 
Danielle, you're you're nine years old and we want you to write a story about like the bear that went to the grocery store or whatever. So then I'm like, okay, so is the bear wearing clothes? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like is he getting his favorite meal? Are we doing string beans or whatever? So, and you know, you get people that respond to that kind of creativity and it's it's magical. And then I was just always that girl that read a lot, you know, every creative writing class, um, yearbook, you know, student papers, just whatever was. And then, and then also other sides of my creativity. I feel like there's so much language in like photography. I was a photography editor in high school and uh, ex-husband is a photographer. Learned a lot about that. I'm in my early 20s. And um, just not, not to sound like this, but painting pictures with words is been a priority to me like pretty much for a lifetime so and then as a music critic you know I just would always feel like my job was because it was the pre-social media era pre-internet era when I started so if I'm going to a show to see who's a good one who's a good show even if it was a bad show okay let's say souls of mischief right a small show that place, Berkeley Square, the, that was the venue. That place might still there, I think. Uh, might hold 200 people. You know, there's no streaming. Uh, there's no iPhones to capture anything. So we like, I'm the girl that's on the record. So I got to paint the picture for people that were not there. So I want to bring all my skills to that. I want to... I want to bring all my skills to that. I want to uh, say what everybody had on. I want to say what the joint smelled like, what the what the speakers felt like if you put your hand on it. I wanted to talk about what the girls were wearing or if there were even a lot of girls at the show. Like when that's the only form of communication, like you just, for me, it was my responsibility to really bring that to the reader. So. I think I just hold on to that. Like, that's just the way I came into the game. And does that magic, does it kind of give you a different fulfillment writing a short form article versus a fiction novel versus a nonfiction book? You know, there's really not that much I don't like to write. So that's the first thing. Like... You can just, you know, what's the assignment? You want me to write a poem? Okay, I will. Like you, I'm not gonna say it's gonna be good now. Let me not act like it's gonna be so great. <laughs> but I will just like sit down and try to write that. I mean, I have a master's in fine arts and in, in, in fiction, so I've taken all these different kinds of classes. So you know, I know the rules and regulations of a sonnet and all those kinds of things, or how to properly write a, you know, or just an argumentative essay, or you know, all these kind of things that you learn throughout your life. But I'm I'm unafraid of words. I think is the main thing. It's like I have no intimidation about like I'm. You want me to write a sentence? What? Like I'll do it. Like what do you want me to do? It's not a problem. So I just love the idea of it. The thing about writing audio scripts now, um, and Trudy will co-sign this. Is like I'm enjoying it so much. But that shit is hard. Like I have this new to me. Like I'm like you want me to do an outline? I'm like I don't even with outlines I haven't dealt with an outline since and then it's like since the last time I wrote something really good maybe so maybe I should go back to it but um you know I'm sparked by it though it's like oh so this is what folks are doing I want to know how to do this I want to know how to do this better I want to know how to do this on time um I just like words I like sentences I I like talking to y'all because 
you guys like talking about this kind of stuff. And it's, it's, um, it's nerdy and it's random, I think. And I hope it's not getting more random is, is a concern that I have because I actually think it's so important and like communicating the truth of things to other people. So it does matter to me. And you mentioned doing your master's there. I know you did your bachelor's and master's at the same time. I did the same thing and it's absolute hell. Yes. So I identify yes. with that. Oh, right? <laughs> right? That's, that was hard. Like, what? And I was in my 30s too. I was tired. Um, so, but it was, I, but, but it was good though. Like, it just, like, sometimes I wonder, like, did I need to pay for that MFA? Like, was that really necessary for that? Uh, but you know what? I think more than anything, one, it taught me a lot and I had great instructors, but I think at the end of the day, it just contributed to my confidence. It's my confidence. It's like, I don't even know how often I go around saying I have a master's in fiction, but in my soul, just knowing that I do, knowing that I've read the books that I've read or done the little assignments that I'm supposed to have done, wrote my thesis and all that stuff, that feels good, like an accomplishment. Hmm. So at Vibe, you said you put people on the cover that others wouldn't. So what cover felt the most successful of a fuck you to the industry at large based on the success of a cover others wouldn't have done? Well, when I said that, I meant that during the 90s and the 2000s, so often the, the artists that were selling the most records and having the most radio play were black artists, R&B artists or hip-hop artists. But at that time, if you can believe it, because things are so different now, uh, more mainstream magazines like, I don't know, GQ, Rolling Stone, their Maxim, all this kind of stuff, they weren't really putting black people on their covers at all. So there was a time when there was a gentleman named uh, Master P who was selling an insane amount of records and getting a ridiculous amount of radio play and he had a whole catchphrase uh, make him say uh you remember no no so you remember all that all that ridiculousness yeah, yes you know you know you know so <laughs> it's like how is this guy not on the cover of every magazine and I'll be really frank I don't know if my publisher was super excited about it when the decision was made um to put Master P on the cover of Vibe you know Vibe the, the Vibe used to be and vibe the vibe used to be um <laughs> you know it was like we're supposed to be the classy one you know we're supposed to be the classy magazine um so you're gonna put some like part of my oaklandisms but some who riding ass fools from new orleans in the bay area like on the cover of a vibe and i was like yes and we're gonna do it need a fifth color too usually in magazines you get you know four colors and i was like we're gonna need a proper fifth which is money um, I want it to be fluorescent orange, please, because we're going with a camo, a camo theme and we might have a tank. And my publisher was like, OK, so no. <laughs> so like, no, no. But I had a great squad over there, too. And we convinced uh, with numbers and and enthusiasm. And I'm happy to say that in history, that is the best selling is issue of Vibe magazine is the Master P make them say uncover. So like that's the kind of stuff that we were doing. But honestly, that's one of many. And whether they sold or not, um, which they usually did sell, but whether they sold or not, it, in some months it wasn't about whether it was going to sell. It's, the back, it's about the fact that this person is supposed to have this. And this person is importantly who our readers want and need to see. Period. 
Mm. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so, um, so, so many of us as just writers and journalists live at that crossroads where we're pining for full-time positions that allow us to express and be compensated, but we can also be limit- limited by those same positions. So when you were you apprehensive when you left when you chose to leave Billboard as the R&B editor and freelance again? Was I apprehensive? What? I just <laughs> was I apprehensive? Well, I was terrified. Like I was I don't what? Like I had I had only been living in New York from Oakland like 8 or 9 months. I quit the job after like seven months, like Dumbo, like, what are you doing? But you know, it was a different time, you know? I had a husband who didn't necessarily like my ambition. So back then I was making decisions based on that and trying to keep a marriage together, that kind of thing. Um, I thought being a freelancer was really gonna allow me to be home more and more of a quote-unquote traditional wife. This is how I was thinking in my 20s. Um, I didn't know better. Uh, so when I resigned from Billboard, and I'm happy to say they still love me, brought me back years later. But um, I was terrified. I literally called everybody. Again, this is before email and stuff, you guys. So I was literally just like at my job, after either right before I resigned or whatever, calling everybody that I had ever written for saying, I'm about to quit my job and I need to know that I'm going to have work for you. Like, and I remember I was talking to Anthony Descartes from Rolling Stone and he was like, sure, Danielle, whatever you need. And I was like, no, Anthony, I need a serious commitment from you. Like, I'm serious. And then he was like, do you want me to pinky swear? Like, what do you want from me? I'm going to give you work. Like, I, and I thought about it to myself. I was like, yes, as a matter of fact, Anthony, I do want a pinky swear. But um, I was scared to death, man. But I, the thing that it did, though, it made me work so hard because I was so scared of being broke, of being evicted, so scared of being like not becoming an editor one day that I just worked all like I worked. I was I was reviewing like three, four shows a week for The New York Times. I was I was reviewing um, records for The Sunday Times. I was. I was going on the road for um, for Rolling Stone. I went on the road with Cypress Hill and Funk Dubious. Um, I was freelancing for Vibe before I went on staff. I was, you know what I mean? Like I was never, I was writing for anybody that would give me some money. So was I scared? I was scared for a thousand reasons. And, you know, the world is different now with regard to jobs, but this is when we used to really think that if you got a job, you were secure. Listen, listen, it wasn't true then. Um, And y'all are, I think it's way harder for you guys now, but I do think that you guys at least know more than we knew because we believed that the security was really a real thing and would be so surprised when it wasn't. I feel like you guys don't, aren't surprised when it isn't. I mean, I question myself sometimes for choosing a career without healthcare guarantees, but you know, not as surprised, not as surprised for sure. Um, no, the, the, yeah, the full-time life isn't all bad, but it's got Mm-mm. some pros. 
Um, yes. You left that, you left that security that you had and you continued writing. And I think as a journalist, one of the most incredible feelings in the world, and you talk about this in your mm. Times article, is when an artist says to you, nobody's ever asked me that. Um, oh, yeah. And as a black woman who's been a journalist and editor, I'm sure you were the first person that many other black female identifying artists were asked a question they'd never been asked before. So do you have a moment or a question that you remember really, really standing out to you of an artist being like, nobody's ever asked me that before? It's a lot of times. It makes me honestly emotional and angry to think about it, that so many people live these amazing lives, these genius lives, and then people don't ask them stuff beyond like, so do you have two baby's fathers? Like, seriously, this is like, that's what you're going to ask her with all them number one hits or all them platinum uh, records or that super, you know, amazing uh, worldwide tour. That's what you want to know about her. Um, I'm not saying that that's not important to a person's humanity, but it's when a person is doing that type of work. It's like, don't be snide or ask the question in such a way that it relates to the work that they're doing, like. A whole way that you could ask that is just like you're writing some amazing songs about love and and and, and breakups. And I know you've had like two very men in your life that matter a lot. Um, the fathers of your kids. How does your relationship with them figure into the songs that you're singing and the songs that you're writing? Now, I'm not going to sit up and pretend like I get it that right every time, but that is the goal. Okay, so that is the goal. So sometimes it's just a question asked like that. Um, Sometimes it's not the question, it's the tone, and sometimes it's not the fact of the tone, it's the person. I can think of a particular artist, um, maybe a lot of people aren't, familiar with him because he's from previous generations, but his name is Johnny Mathis. And the song that most people would be familiar with is probably his duet with Denise Williams, uh, Too Much, Too Little, Too Late. So Johnny Mathis is a favorite of my grandmother's, a favorite of my mother's. So I grew up listening to Johnny Mathis. And man, listen, I reviewed Johnny Mathis live at Carnegie Hall. And I remember calling my mother and my grandmother and they were like, you have no business reviewing Johnny Mathis on a street corner. <laughs> like, how are you reviewing Johnny Mathis? And I was like, don't be mad. Um, and then years after that, I interviewed Johnny Mathis when I, was at, when I was editor of Billboard for some kind of special issue. So I had him on the phone and I'm just thinking to myself, I can't believe I'm speaking to Johnny Mathis. And it was so great because he's from San Francisco. I'm from Oakland. Um, at a certain point on the call, he said, am I to understand that you are African-American, miss? I want to say, first of all, I love that miss when I'm like all deep up into my 40s. Um, So we start talking about stuff. And then I just said, you know, you always ask people, what do you regret? Do you have any regrets at the end of, you know, towards the end of a long career? And he'd been singing, you know, but this time 60 or 70 years. So I asked him, I just said, is there anything that you really regret? He said, you know, I feel comfortable saying it. And I, I took him at his, what he meant was because he was speaking to a black person. 
He said, I wish I had had the sense to tell the white reporters when I was young that my name wasn't Johnny, it was John. And I was just like, oh my God. Like we all just been calling him Johnny Mathis in his 50s and 60s and 70s, like he's our neighbor and shit. Like we know him. Like in all fairness, like a lot of us should just be calling him Mr. Mathis. And to think that it's been somewhat bothering him all this time. Yo. But you know, he became a pop star in the 50s. He was happy to probably to be getting booked in, in non-segregated rooms when he could. So I hope that answers, you know, it just so important for there to be like all types of people in this business. So important for there to be black people talking to black artists. And it doesn't have to be all the time, but for so long, it's been close to never and none. That's the part that like, hey, there's jamming conversations to be happy between white people and black people. I'm having them with you guys right now. I'm not saying that. You know what I mean? Like, come on. No one's saying that, you know, black artists can only speak to black people. It's just when it's been so rare that it becomes so incredibly important that it does happen. Yeah, and I think there's there's something to be said about community in, in conversation and that yeah. being a place where if as a journalist your sole goal is to create the most authentic version of a story or get somebody to tell you the most authentic version of their story – you, we owe it to artists or whomever we're interviewing to create an environment that is conducive to that. And if in that environment community does not exist, how can they tell you the perils of their life when you don't know what that life is like? And so I think that that's really imperative. Super. I agree with you. Now, I, I, don't, do, Joshima. I don't want to be too cheesy, but I say this a lot, that we make love with words as journalists and writers and that music is a love language. But if someone mm-hmm. was courting you, someone wants to take Danielle out on a date, what is on the playlist? Oh, What's playing in the car? Oh my, seriously? So you're saying that the show's over and it's time for me to go home? What? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Me? I haven't. Okay, I don't know whether to be so, it's so on the nose that my 16th anniversary is tomorrow, so... Um, What's on the anniversary playlist in the month of Danielle? Yes, right? Um, Elliot used to make me... Um, it's part of courtship, right? He used to make me playlists when we were first going out. He used to, how long ago it was? He used to burn me CDs. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be on the... Like, Back then, like, I don't even know what to, when you've been married this long, it's like you begin to forget that you were ever single. But, um, I know, I know that I do want to hear and to you, so many love songs are corny, which I think is so sad that we all refer to them at that. And I think it's because they make us uncomfortable because they put us so deep in our feelings, right? But I'm trying to hear I Will Always Love You from Winnie Houston. Okay, so um, I'm trying to hear uh, Seven Days from Mary J. Blige. Um, I'm trying to hear Why Have I Lost You from one 
early, early cameo record. Um, I'm trying to hear Is This the End from New Edition's first album. Um, I'm trying to think more recently. Oh, my God. I have to hear Hold On, We're Going Home from Drake. Um, <laughs> without question, it's one of the better love songs of the last 10 years. And y'all, yeah. don't, and I say, don't add me. Don't add me, because I probably heard it three times alone today. Um, he's literally so bound by... I'll just say it. He's so bound by society's expectations of what a rapper is supposed to be like. He's not leaning into his his soulful R&B side enough. And I'm here to pick it and say, let's go, Aubrey. Let's make this happen uh, with more love songs, please, because he's so good at it. So that would have to be on there for me. Um, so much from Luther Vandross. So much from Sade. So much from Sade. Um she soundtracked my whole wild ass twenties, so you know it's really not a bad playlist if I think about it. That's, a, that's, that's incredible. Like another <laughs> another uh, Spotify. Listen. I need that, right? I need that. <laughs> I need that. I need that. Streaming platforms, if you're listening. <laughs> Ready? Let's go. Danielle's date playlist needs to be a thing. Oh, I'm in it. First of all, putting Danielle and date in the same sentence is comedy. So let's go. That's already ahead of me. Like, what is that? <laughs> so, Danielle, we only have a limited time with you. So we have to get in our, our final outro signature questions with you. Okay. Um, so I'm scared. What we, just a little. Don't be. It's it's very, very low key. Okay. So our, our, uh, just a quick precursor, just so you get how we're going to break it down. Okay. We're not into labeling anything the best and worst, which is an essential part of Central Sauces and In Search of Sauces intention in journalism. Okay. To us, the inherent definition of, in quotes, sauce, who's got it and why it's subjective is depending entirely on your personal standards. And then this is our three question ending sequence, which we call who besides you got the sauce. And I'm going to ask the first question. So to you, who's got the most sauce in the music industry from any sector and why? Artist, media, label, manager, playlister, whoever. Ooh. Who's got the sauce? I mean, there's so many of my... I do not like to call them my baby girlfriends, but in my head they are because they're young. But when I think of people like Melissa Kimball of Black Creatives, um, when I think of the writer Darian Harvin, um, when I think of the podcaster Sylvia O'Bell, um, when I think of Black women that I used to work with at ESPN, like Jamel Hill, um, I mean, these are women who have the sauce. I mean, they're just smart, brilliant, beautiful, talk shit, uh, can hold a drink. Um, you know, I think about, uh, I mean, I could even think about Trudy, who's on the call with me right now. I could think about uh, my good girlfriend who started out as an intern at Vibe and 
now does all, you know, that kind of secret work that you do when you work at agencies, but really you're doing like all the work for all the biggest streaming companies in the world, my girl Taj Rani. So there's just, there's too many. And then I also have to always say that um, my niece and nephew are the future. Uh, they're both geniuses. And without question is uh, Elliot Wilson has the sauce uh, for now and forever. Yeah, think about uh, him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's a... Uh, <laughs> He's a he's a brilliant guy and and I always like to remind people that I knew Elliot for years before we ever started dating. We did not have like that thing where it's like, oh, they really like each other. You could tell how they hate each other. No, it wasn't. It was just very like basic, like Harry, sir, nice to see you. And sometimes he freelance revived. I'd see him and it was good. Maybe we worked together, maybe we didn't. I say all that to say I knew him as a human being before I knew him as a date or a boyfriend or a fiance or a husband of one or 16 years and and since it is the month of Danielle and my anniversary is here I will say that he's really just like the smartest guy always it's passionate about music and life and love and it's one of the reasons that we're still together so Elliot Jesse Wilson Jr. does have the sauce <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So our second question, our second question is, uh, mm. whose level of source do you admire most in your life outside of music and journalism? So it can't be Elliot because he's a music journalist. <laughs> That's not that hard. I would probably say that there's two people right now. One happens to be the Vice President of the United States of America, who isn't just the Vice President, Kamala Harris. She's also a sister Oakland girl. We have the same hometown. Whenever she speaks, and I don't agree with every single thing she says, but I am super, super duper proud of her. I love the way she carries herself. And it doesn't matter who she's talking to, on what level around this whole world, she just sounds like a girl from Oakland. And it does my heart good every single time. And then we start talking about Stacey Abrams. Well, she didn't save everybody's life. Um, then I hear she's also like the tech woman who's raised all this money for whatever that company is, but then also she's written like some romance novels. And, yeah, I was about to say. And I'm like, girl, what? And you making me vote? I don't, I don't even live in Georgia. Um, I also just love to hear her speak. She's so forthright. Even when she gets a little bit rattled, she just keeps plowing forward. And it is such an inspiration. So those would be the two for me. Amazing. So if you had to pick one journalist you think would add the most sauce to our next interview, who would it be? Dang, y'all be putting me on the spot. <laughs> We're just doing our job. Okay. I was going to say, so I'm going to take Elliot out of it. I, I, I know too many like I know too many. You can you can definitely name. You're a few. not picking only just for the next episode. There's gonna be episodes after that, you know. 
Okay. Okay. So. I would say Kelly Carter of ESPN, of ESPN's The Undefeated. I would say Justin Tinsley of ESPN's The Undefeated. I would say Aaron Dodson of ESPN's The Undefeated. Um, I would say Kelly Evans from ESPN's The Undefeated. Um, I think is, I think we are have already seen so many great things from that team and. Yes, I'm biased. They're on my team, um, but we've we've seen so many so many great things from them. But there's only so much uh, greatness ahead of them that I think we're going to see in 2022 from all of them. Um, I think we also need to look on the the side of editors and uh, Kevin Merida, who was my boss at ESPN, is uh, now the new, I believe editor of the Los Angeles Times. And I think that that's going to be a very interesting era for the Times, and we should all really watch to see what amazing things that Kevin brings to the LA Times. So I really feel like, too, while I'm on that, I think we often, 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 often talk about the writers. And I think I just like to remind people how much and the speakers, you know, the quote unquote talent. But I think we also need to remember the the producers and the editors who who make all of this media thing work. And so when I mentioned somebody like Kevin, he's he's really just uh, one of of many. He's a standout. But there's so many of us out there. And I know sometimes it's hard to play the back. Sometimes as a producer or an editor, you have to play the back. Um, but the re- the rewards are are many. They are so many because we need people in leadership positions in media. Um, we need to be the people that are being pitched to, not just the people that are doing the pitching. So I just want to remind everybody that I love a byline and now I'm on the mic. But in my heart, the most important job that I've had and that I still have sometimes is being an editor getting other people's work where it needs to be, figuring out context and headlines and speaking up about other people's work in meetings. And you know what I mean? If something's going to front page or not, if something like all this kind of stuff, man, we need people in those positions. It's not just correcting people's periods and commas, even though I know I'm one of the damn best at that. But it's really, it's being a leader in media. And it needs, it, we need more people of color. We need more women. Ain't that the truth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amazing. Well, yeah, Danielle, um, I think we may have even gone a little over the time, but uh, we've had an amazing, I've had an amazing time. I can't speak <laughs> for myself, but I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> amazing time talking to you. We have about eight bajillion more questions, but you're uh, of the most important women. So I'm sure you have many other things to do. Mm-mm. I love talking to you guys. I, I feel like we came into each other's lives in some type of weird way. I don't know if you like something of mine or Elliot's or we just met at, at the bar that we've been talking about all um, show. But 
I just, I just, I love the take that you guys have on things. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of shows out there and I think this show really stands out for being very about like words and nerdy things along with the music and, and I just really appreciate you guys. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your thank time. You for your time. Yes. All right. You guys have a good one. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Take it easy. This episode of A Search of Source featured Josh Marauder, Mickey Hellerback, and Ryan Gordon Center Source Creative Collective, and Miss Daniel Smith. The episode is edited by me, Chai Taylor Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to Joe Breckers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Thanks to Basti, Joe Breckers, Central Source, and Fifth Element can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.